Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Journal Club. Um, we are, it's it's the Journal Club duo of David and Bobby. Um, welcome Batman back. Robin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the new Batman movie? I have not. Um, we saw it. I liked it. It was good. Um, anyhow, I think I actually mentioned that on a different podcast uh, and makes it sound like I'm kind of obsessed with it now, but, um, which is not true. Um, we're going to do things, uh, a little bit differently today. Um, we, we are still, articles, 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 we, we are going to talk about articles, um, Absolutely. but, but, um, but we basically this came up because we had um, we've had we've had several, but um, we recently had another DKA, a pretty sick DKA yeah. in the ER, and it just kind of springboarded a number of you know questions and topics yeah. and discussion of like how are we managing this, and um, so we do have several articles for today, but we're gonna do more of just a talk on diabetes and DKA, DKA specifically. Yeah. Um, but I, I'll just mention the three articles um, that we'll refer to um, time rather than going through them individually. But um, so the first one is uh, by Gallagher and, uh, and friends called a pilot study comparing a protocol using intermittent administration of glargine and regular insulin to a continuous rate infusion of regular insulin in cats with naturally occurring diabetic ketoacidosis. So that's one that's a prospective, a small prospective study. Um, in cats. And then there is uh, a a hefty, but um, I think pretty good review um, on diabetic emergencies in small animals. Um, This one is written by uh, Mo O'Brien. She's um, a criticalist who's actually been on this podcast before. Um, Yeah. And so that's another, like I said, that's like a review kind of going through a lot of, a lot of stuff there. That's a heavy one. And then the last one is an article from human medicine called sliding scale insulin use myth or insanity. <laughs> which mm-hmm. um, I think they, cho- you don't get a choice of good again. Yeah, it was like sanity. yeah, exactly. They they really kind of limited um, <laughs> the the outcomes you could you could decide with. But that this Umpieris and uh, and colleagues for that one from uh, the American Journal of Medicine. So those are the three from the week. But really, it was just about and and you sent the original email at David saying like, oh, hey, okay. we should talk about how yeah. we manage DKA. Um, so maybe share like what, what prompted that and you know, what, what was your thought process on it? Sure. Uh, it, it came mainly from two points. Um, one uh, was the patient that you're referring to. Um, uh, that animal's uh, glucose was initially seemingly refractory to yeah. insulin treatment, meaning that it was not decreasing despite repeated um, increasing uh, rates of insulin administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it plummeted and then it bounced all around, which is not an unusual experience, (laughs) um, but, um, did so more than, than most patients. Um, and then, um, I was having a discussion with our intern veterinarians about potassium and phosphorus Mm -hmm. supplementation and, um, different ways of going about that and the risks of rapid administration and over how much time you should administer things like that. So, um, from that came the thought that um, maybe we should discuss and see if there are yeah. some somewhat uniform ways we could do things. This um, is always tough yeah. in these kinds of diseases, right? Like DKA is one of those that for me, like, oh, there's, there's just so much nuance because every case yep. is going to behave differently. Absolutely. And um, the thing that I try to harp on I harp on a lot of things but for DKA specifically is you do have to have like a decent understanding of the physiology like I think um, this is where I get 
um, I think I had like an epiphany years ago, probably during my residency where I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I just didn't get it. Like I didn't get it. And I always thought of DKA as like either a continuation of diabetes or like just this other thing that happens in diabetics. And I reframed this in my own head. And this is just how I think about it now. And I don't, well, I'll be curious to know what your thoughts are, but I think of DKA and diabetes as almost different diseases. And I know that sounds weird (laughs) because they're obviously not completely different diseases, but I think of them differently in that, like, I think of their treatment very differently. They both get treated with insulin, um, but that's kind of where a lot of it ends Mm -hmm. in that regard. And so um, I always think like, I have to have, if I have a diabetic, uh, a regular diabetes mellitus patient, it can become a DKA at any given point. And my goal is to revert it from a DKA back to a diabetic. Like, Uh, and and until that, like until the DKA has become a diabetic, I need to kind of forget about my normal diabetes management because it just doesn't apply here. Again, I'm using some of the same things, mm-hmm. but my approach is just so different um, because my goals are different. Um, whereas with diabetes, I'm like, okay, it's about glucose management. Where with DKA, it's about ketone and acidosis management. And mm-hmm. I don't care about the glucose in that time. Um, and that's obviously a bit of an overstatement. I do care about it, but, um, as far as the, the perfect control of the glucose is not, is not my primary aim. Right. And so, um, so that's what I've over the years when I'm teaching about DKA, I, I try to like get people to like, I need you to think about this very differently because I think people have a decent understanding of diabetes, mm-hmm. um, and about, you know, glucose management and they want to apply those same principles to a DKA. And I think that that's where I used to trip up. And I think that's where a lot of people trip up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I don't know, I mean, you're an internist and so you, mm-hmm. you've been dealing with diabetes, um, and, and long-term management for diabetes a lot more. I don't do the long, t- and that's probably also mm-hmm. part of my bias. I don't really do the long-term management right. of diabetes. Um, um, I think DKA is way more interesting <laughs> to manage as well, right? Um, I knew you were a criticalist at heart, really. Well, seeing as we didn't have have one until exactly. you arrived a year and a half ago, <laughs> I've been dealing with DKA my right. whole career. So yeah. So so yeah. So what is like? What are your, what's your first impression of when I say like I think they're different entities, and you're just like, mm, or you're like, oh, yeah, no, kind of. I, I completely okay. agree. I mean, obviously, like you said, they are to some extent a continuum with yeah. similar basal treatments but um but yeah i mean the the dk patients nearly always have a, a serious comorbidity and mm-hmm. they've got electrolyte abnormalities and, and and far more nuance that needs to be addressed and mm-hmm. um and things change at a very rapid pace mm-hmm. and many yeah. of them and so it's uh it's very different than treating a stable diabetic that was one of the things that I actually, I liked about um, Mo O'Brien's review on diabetic emergencies is uh-huh. that she did review a lot of the physiology, um, which I think is, is I, I need a refresher on that every once in a while too. Um, so I think that was helpful for me in that regard where, where I think things get hard um, and where I think we need to do more of these discussions is like, okay, but how do we come up with some protocols or mm-hmm. guidelines for how do we manage um, DKA specifically? Right. Um, again, diabetes, you know, we're going we're gonna to kind of leave that aside a little bit for now, except for it, it's specifically relevant, but specifically for DKA. Um, you know, I think there's a, a number of principles to keep in mind, like with if you have a DKA, um, that could be the basis of like a protocol. Mm-hmm. I get wary of like what, what people mean when they say protocol. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's where I get nervous because um, I, I have had many cases where the protocol doesn't work. Um, and not that it couldn't work. 
but people get very stuck with a protocol where like, I cannot deviate from this. This is the protocol and this must work every time. And if it doesn't work that, and it's like, and so that's the, that's the main danger I see in protocols is not that the protocol themselves are bad, um, but people become almost overly reliant on them. And yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but I do think, um, one of the things where maybe we could, um, not so much have a protocol, but but guidelines yeah. um, is something else that you've brought up with these articles today, which is CRIs versus yeah. intermittent insulins. Yeah. Um, and um, I think finding standard protocols for potassium supplementation is mm-hmm. not really possible because individual patients vary so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but like having yeah. guidelines for like, you should be checking this. <laughs> like oh, yeah. you should be, you know, like yeah, we could do that. Yeah. You know, or like what are some, like you said, guidelines, not mm-hmm. protocols. Like you have to do it this way, right. but you should be thinking about this. Like, Hey, don't forget. I think that's where protocols can be super helpful where it's like, Hey, don't forget. You need to address this. Don't forget. You need to, to follow up on this because I think that's what trips people up. Um, if you have, I think a solid understanding of the physiology then I think a protocol or like a checklist or, you know, whatever you want it to be can be really helpful um, and can help because it's just a lot to keep track of. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, protocols are designed to avoid people making mistakes. That That's what they are there for. And actually there's good evidence in human medicine um, that protocols can improve outcomes. Yep. Um, but there's also really cool evidence that once a protocol becomes like ingrained, you don't need it anymore. And the protocol mm-hmm. stops being useful because people just understand it better. Um, right. And they end up following the protocol, so to speak, whether they're following the protocol or not. That happened with early goal-directed therapy, fluid therapy and critical care, which was really cool. Initially, those protocols made huge differences. And then 10 years later, it didn't make a difference at all right. um, because people were just doing it. Um, so I guess maybe from a training standpoint, protocols can be helpful if if people are ultimately getting it, if they're Mm -hmm. understanding what's happening. Um, so where, where do you stand on your, your treat? You have a DKA and, um, I don't know. I mean, we could talk about like the initial stabilization. Maybe we should, maybe we should just talk about like initial diagnostics and stabilization. You have a, a, you know, they come in two types, or at least how I think of them. They come as a known diabetic or not known diabetic, previously Mm -hmm. diagnosed or not. The, obviously the previously diagnosed diabetics, you home in on the DKA sometimes a little quicker, but um, let's say you've gotten to the point where you've like, I think this patient is a DKA. Like, what are your first thoughts? Yeah, so um, is from a, from a treatment standpoint, my initial thoughts are volume replacement because mm-hmm. um, invariably they, they're behind. They're behind. Um, and second, electrolyte supplementation, which mm-hmm. ideally I'm going to do off of, based off of measurements, yeah. Um, yeah. off of the chemistry profile. Um, and then their diabetic management um, yeah. sort of afterward, and then diagnostics of comorbidities following yeah. that. Yeah. Now that all may happen within a matter of, you know, three or four hours. Yeah. But, um, but that's sort of the order of my uh, of my interest. Yeah. Okay, well, let me back you up even just a teensy bit yeah. there. So what what do you need to feel like you've made a diagnosis of DKA? Like, how do you make that diagnosis? Uh, a diabetic that <laughs> is not feeling well um, and has ketones in its urine. 
Yeah. Okay. So that I want, I was curious about that because for me, because I feel like ketones in the urine are pretty common in patients that aren't diabetic or sorry, that aren't ketotic. Uh, no, let me rephrase mm. that again. That are not acidemic. Um, yes. We see a fair Great. number. So, um, so for me, I'm like, I, I'd want, I want an acid base status. Like I want to see a blood gas that shows they're acidemic or at the very least, like, you know, they have a very low bicarb. Maybe they have a mixed disturbance mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, now I'm going to be suspicious of a DKA mm-hmm. if they're sick, um, if they're a sick diabetic and have ketones. Um, but I, um, I guess what I feel like I've seen a lot, and you you didn't say this, but I feel like this is where people get tripped up as as well, is they see a diabetic with ketones and they go, it's DKA. Mm. Yeah, and I see that kind of a lot. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think from a, a terminology standpoint, that's wrong. But I think the diagnostics and treatments of a sick ketotic diabetic yeah. that's not acidotic yeah. and one that is acidotic yeah. are not different. But you said, you said it again, you said sick. And I see this commonly in people who have animals that aren't that sick, right? Um, so yeah. I, I guess that's well, for I me. What, I don't know what to say about those. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. but like, you know, or, and even that, sick, what is, what do we mean by that? Because generally a DKA is pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Um, where you have, I have some of these patients, I've had patients that are referred over for a DKA and they're still eating. Mm, yeah, and like, that's, that's not, who that's not a sick, pa- well, yeah. and, but that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, Cause exactly. I'm like, I feel like I, I see this. And, and so, um, if you don't have the capability of doing acid base status, I get that mm-hmm. you can still say, Hey, I'm concerned about this patient, but I feel like people say, Oh, they're diabetic and they have ketones in the urine. They're a DKA. And I'm yeah. like, no, because no. you've said it every time you've been like, they're sick. And I think that's the step that a lot of people yeah. are missing is that no, like these are sick patients yeah. um, because ketones in the urine can happen in a, in a diabetic. I mean, it's yeah. obviously probably not ideal in most cases. Um, and but I don't know, maybe it, I feel like we see it in non-diabetic patients now and again. And I'm like, oh, I don't even know what to do with that. But, um, but ketones in the urine in and of themselves do not make a DKA. That's the point I no. want to make. Oh, I um, but I, I would agree with you that if they're sick and I don't have, I mean, I want acid base, but if I don't have it, I'm that, that is not going to prevent me from treating a sick diabetic like uh, a sick diabetic, whether they're mm-hmm. officially DKA or not. Um, okay. So the other thing you mentioned was like electrolytes. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously the fluid recitation fluid resuscitation is super important, but the electrolytes, the, this is the thing that also, I think when it, I I read this at some point, I was like, okay, I need to remember that. That makes sense. Was that, um, a DKA can come in and the potassium you measure could be high, low, or normal, but chances are that patient has a total body depletion of potassium. And that was really important for me to be like, oh yeah, that's right. Most of our potassium is on the inside of our cells and not what we're measuring when we measure potassium in the blood. And I, I kind of needed that light bulb to go off. Um, and, and so here's my question for you. Let's say you have, you have a a DKA. Mm -hmm. Um, like you've done some initial fluid resuscitation. You're probably not done, but you've done some initial fluid resuscitation to the point that you are ready to start insulin. And I'm going to jump around a little bit here, yeah. but we're, you're going to start insulin. What do, are you going to do with the potassium? And yeah. maybe like in those three scenarios, high potassium that you measured, normal potassium, low potassium. I'm curious what you do. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if this is right, but it's worked in my experience. Yeah. So if their potassium is low or within the reference interval, I include potassium in their ongoing fluid therapy, yeah. as well as some portion of that being delivered as potassium phosphates. Mm-hmm. 
um, because I feel the same way about their phosphorus. I, yeah. I know it's going to go down. Yeah. Um, if their potassium is high, mm -hmm. I don't supplement potassium, but I am astutely paying attention to their yeah. renal function. Okay. Uh, because yeah. to me, those are the ones that You're are about. likely either in AKI or mm -hmm. heading in that direction. Yeah. Um, and so uh, those that are hyperkalemic, I will monitor and deal with potassium as yeah. needed as we go along. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Like if they're normal or low, I just start supplementing potassium. Yeah. If they're high, I don't start supplementing, but I watch and I'm probably going to check it again in a few hours because I've had some where I, I've definitely had some that had AKI as well, of course, but I've had some that they were just so far behind that they were like oliguric just from how fluid yeah. behind they were that mm -hmm. their potassiums were increased and then they quickly plummet. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I've ever had a DKA that didn't eventually go on potassium <laughs> supplementation, yeah, right? Agree. So yeah, that, that's, but I was curious because that's exactly what I do. If they're low, or normal, I start potassium, obviously on a sliding scale, depending on how low they are, a higher rate of supplementation if they start out low, because mm -hmm. I know it's going to get worse. If they're high, I don't start it. Like if they're like a, like 0.2 over oh, the reference sure. range, I start it. Yeah, we're talking um, about I'm talking about if they're hyperkalemic, yeah, then I'm going to wait, but I'm going to be checking it really soon, anticipating it's going to drop. Um, and then I'm going to have to start supplementing. And I, you know, invariably within, I would say 12 to 24 hours, they all end up on potassium supplementation and a lot of them much sooner than that. So, so that's good. So you and I are on the same page there. So that's like part of the, the protocol or the guidelines is like, you yeah. need to be either starting potassium supplementation right away or watching really closely and getting ready to start as soon as that potassium is normal. Cause the hyperkalemic yeah. ones are infrequent, I would say too. Yep. They're usually low or normal. Um, how do you do your potassium supplementation? Yeah. Good question. So if they are severely mm -hmm. hypokalemic, and I would, I'll say one and a half yeah, or less. Yeah, that's pretty severe. Um, then I'm going to calculate their potassium requirement mm -hmm. and give it as a intravenous infusion over yeah. an hour in okay. a separate line uh -huh. on its own pump. Okay. Um, if, if it's, you know, above that, um, then I'm going to add potassium to their bag. Yeah. Um, both, like I said, as potassium chloride and potassium phosphates. Mm -hmm. And as far as how much I'm going to add to the bag, um, you know, I typically use the the scale that's in um, this yeah. review article that you are referring to from Benedict Clinics from yeah. North America, which yeah. based on, like you said, a sliding scale, um, how much potassium chloride you add to a liter bag. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, how much potassium they're getting depends on how fast you're running the yep. fluids. Yep. Um, but, um, with that, um, with those amounts that are added to the bag, mm -hmm. um, so example would be, you know, 20 milliequivalents per liter if their potassium is normal. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you'd have to run that at an exceptionally high rate to cause hyperkalemia. So yeah. I don't worry about, um, the fact that they may be getting, um, about whether they're on a maintenance rate or two or three times that I'm yeah. not worried about them getting hyperkalemic and yeah. I know I'm going to recheck it yeah. um, within four to six hours. So yeah. I can, can make adjustments. I find that, um, yeah. So most of these, I, I tend not to use the, these type of sliding scales uh -huh. for potassium. I like to just go with like milliequivalents per kg per hour. So I factor in their fluid rate. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, okay, what fluid rate am I, I, I want them to be at maintenance potassium. So like I probably would do 0.1 milliequivalents per kg per hour. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, what's my fluid rate? And then I would decide how much potassium I wanted to add. Cause I agree with you. I think you're very unlikely to give them too much potassium. If you use these scales, I think more often we don't give them enough. Um, so I tend to, uh, 
I'm not patient. I'm not a patient person. And so um, I'm like, no, I want to, I want to give them, you know, cause if you went with, if their potassium is normal and you went with 20 milliequivalents per liter, it would go down. And yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> like if you had them at a maintenance rate for sure, um, but even twice maintenance, I'm like, oh, and we're giving insulin, like that's not going to cut it. Um, and so I think again, for safety, like you said, you're not going to yeah. give, you know, cause hyperkalemia with any of these. Um, but f- you're also probably not going to help a lot of the hypokalemia that we see in these cases. So that's why I tend to go with, instead of like uh, how much to add to the bag, I, I just go with like, you know, zero point oh five to one for maintenance if they're normal or like honestly if they're high i might even start them at like 0.05 um like just to do some potassium because i know it's going to drop and then 0.15 to 0.25 milliequivalents per kg per hour if they're like mildly hypokalemic mm-hmm. 0.35 to 0.45 if it's moderate and then you know and i'm sure you've exceeded but you're just going to do that for an hour and then recheck right yeah i'm going to yeah. do it for a bit and then adjust but i just um you know ultimately you have to you're going to have to try a dose recheck and readjust. Um, I guess what I would do is I would just make a new scale. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just think this one underdoses them a lot. Mm. Um, and I think we appropriately, we, we make, you know, students and young doctors like kind of scared of potassium because like it it Uh, does have its dangers. Well, you know, (laughs) but yes, they are are scared. Yeah. And I'm like, they're, I feel like they're disproportionately scared for how scary it should be. Like, I want you to have a healthy risk, like horses, like you should have a healthy respect (laughs) for them, (laughs) but like being afraid of them makes it worse worse. Absolutely. Um, and I think the same thing happens with potassium. That's my analogy for the day. Um, potassium is like horses. Yeah. <laughs> if you're too scared of them, it makes it worse. Um, and, and I think that we, I don't quite know where that fear comes from. Yeah. I, I Cause you're know, not teaching them that. Uh, I don't no, know. It's, and it's been going on forever. And yeah. once I, at least with the sliding scale, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have them calculate out the yeah. toxic rate and yeah. then calculate the rate they'd be getting if they use this yeah. sliding scale supplementation and, and then they can see that yeah. they're very disparate. They're, yeah. they're, the safety level's high. Right. And as far as using the calculating a dose, as you mentioned, which is still somewhat of a sliding scale. Yeah, it is. Um, even then, as long as the understanding is we're going to administer it for a short to duration yeah. and then we're going to recheck, not yeah. we're going to keep administering it right. at this theoretically toxic rate. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's fine. Well, and again, like I'm sure you've exceeded the K, quote unquote, K max of 0.5 milliequivalents per kg per hour. Sure. Not often. Um, Rarely, but in urgent situations. But there yeah. are times when I've had to, and I've had yeah. patients that were just so potassium wasting that like you had to exceed those rates or you sure. weren't going to make a dent. And so that K max, I, you know, I want people, it's a made up max. It's not yeah. a real max. Um, now, the other thing that you do have to factor in with potassium supplementation though, is the osmolality of those fluids. Yeah. Um, because, um, you know, KCL comes in two milliequivalents per per milliliter, um, which is 2000 milliosmoles per liter, um, which if you remember normal osmolality is around 300. Um, so it is super hyperosmolar straight. So it always has to be diluted. Um, and the higher, um, you know, amounts you're adding to a bag of fluid, you can start to lead to osmolality. So if you give it, you can't give it super concentrated is essentially the the point. Um, you will cause a, a pretty nasty phlebitis. Um, so, you know, but again, you shouldn't be scared of it. Um, and then, so you also mentioned phosphorus, um, which is the other one that is super important. I think, I don't know if it scares people as much or they just ignore it. I think um, people don't know what to do with it because yeah. it's just not something that most vets commonly supplement. So it's unfamiliar. 
Yeah. So it's unfamiliar. I think the other issue and the issue I run into with it is particularly in critical care and after hours is there aren't good, easy ways to measure it repeatedly. Um, Whereas potassium is, you know, you have iStats, you have different um, bedside machines that will give you a a pretty accurate potassium measurement where we don't routinely have that with phosphorus. You usually have to run a chemistry of some kind. And um, usually when I'm managing a DKA, they're always little. They're not always little, but it seems like they're always little. And <laughs> like it's never like a 40 kilogram, you know, no. a great Dane or something like that. Um, and so you do have to start thinking about how much blood you're pulling from these patients. And if you're doing chemistries every four hours to check phosphorus, like it's also just not practical. Um, and so that's the other, for me, a limiting factor with phosphorus mm-hmm. um, in that I can't easily monitor it as closely as I can potassium. Um, so, yeah. So you said you... You normally start by potassium, both KCL and KFOS. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that? Do you do that 50-50? How do you? Yeah. So I, I typically do the 50-50. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't usually bother to calculate the phosphorus dosage. Um, the students must like you so much better than me. No, I, I, know, th- I know that you have them calculate it. Um, <laughs> well, particularly so when you're I, combining KFOS and KCL, it's, it, the yeah. math is tricky. So sometimes I will, I will have them, or for myself to then share with them, we'll show them what the difference would be yeah. between doing 50-50 mm-hmm. split of KCL and KFOS versus calculating out the potassium yeah. phosphates dosage. And often they are not particularly different. Yeah. Um, okay. Because um, I usually do phosphorus. My starting dose is like 0.03 millimoles per mm-hmm. keg per hour. And then what I make them do, because I'm meaner than you, is I make them calculate how much phosphorus they want and then um, figure out how much potassium that provides and then subtract that from the dose of potassium they wanted right. to give. Um, yeah. And, you know, part of that, I want them to be able to do that math. Um, and so that's certainly a, a portion of it. But at the end of the day, um, I mean, I think your point is that like, you don't know what that patient's going to do with it. Right. Like I still, I'm like, yeah. this is what I'm going to start with. Um, but then we're going to just see what happens and then we're going to adjust it as needed. So um, I think for me, like the, the chart for the potassium, that's the thing I want people to remember is that this is a, a wimpy approach <laughs> to potassium. And so just be prepared is that you either need to check this frequently and be prepared to bump it up. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I, I don't know, maybe like, sh- maybe we shift this first column <laughs> in the potassium just like up a little bit and so, or down, down a little bit. Yeah. So if they have normal potassium for a DKA, not yeah. for like a regular patient, but like change the potassium yeah. chart for a DKA to give more aggressive potassium supplementation because I agree. For most yeah. disorders that scale works fine. Sure. But for DKA, yes, it, it's, it definitely can be an under underestimate yeah. of what you need. Um, okay. So We've talked about some of the um, electrolyte supplementation, but I mean, we can't ignore the insulin. That's like the mainstay of treatment for DKA. So, um, and this is again where I think you and I approach it differently, but like, so um, what's your philosophical approach? Like what's, you know, if you're going to teach somebody the physiology of like, this is how you have to treat DKA and then what's your practical, like, what do you actually do? Yeah. So, I mean, from the theoretical side is, uh, this animal's got cellular starvation occurring mm-hmm. and um, that's not going to change until we can give it insulin and yep. there's got to be a, a glucose source. Um, yep. And in many of these animals, they've probably depleted their glycogen storage mm-hmm. and they're not eating, so they're not taking in glucose. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to shut down ketone production. Yep. And so that the only way those things are going to happen is with insulin. Insulin. And the yep. insulin will also... Um, help convert 
those ketones uh, to bicarbonate ultimately, mm-hmm. um, which will help correct the acidosis. And so uh, they've got to get insulin. Yep. Um, I have definitely um, always and still do uh, teach students that um, if animals are not eating, which if they're in DK, they, they, <laughs> they aren't, usually aren't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then, then we should use short-acting insulins mm-hmm. um, yeah. because the, the situation is dynamic and may change. Yeah. And um, so that's the way I've approached it. Yeah. Um, however, um, you you posted one article about um, intermittent glargine yeah. used for DK patients yeah. from 2015. Yeah. And, um, but the evidence that that, that can work, um, that longer-acting insulins can work for treatment of DK goes back even further. Yeah. To 2013, there's a pretty nice article by Jackie Rand um, looking at a similar glargine protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we, with the medicine service, discussed that um, back in 2013. Yeah. Uh, nobody made the change. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, and I, again, I think it's much like sure. the article about uh, myth or... Um, myth or insanity. Myth or insanity. <laughs> um, you know, it's just been sort of handed down and yeah. nobody wants to buck the system yeah. or change despite other evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there and there's there's a number of studies in human medicine as well about sticking with long-acting insulin. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with you, though. I like regular insulin because, again, maybe it's just... Maybe it's why I went into critical care or as a criticalist, like I like to tinker and, you know, they're dynamic and they're changing all the time. And, um, I, I do, I think a combination is also reasonable. Um, you know, the problem is with a lot of the long acting insulins is their sub Q and these animals are coming in without any perfusion to their sub Q because like that. So, um, it, it seems a little weird. Like you have to resuscitate them first in my head. Like it just doesn't even make sense. But, um, I think, you know, like one of the, not problems, but like, I think the, the, um, the pro- prospective study comparing the Glargine and the CRI was well done. Yeah. I think the issue though is like, you just need to compare the doses of insulin they're getting. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, I mean, I'm like you, like the only treatment for DKA, the only actual treatment for DKA is insulin. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that's going to reverse this process. There's other things we have to consider because, you know, that treatment has its own issues and they have other comorbidities, but the only thing to reverse this process is insulin. That's it. That's all we have. Um, and so that's going to reverse the ketosis. That's going to feed the cells. Um, we, we have to, we have to give them insulin. They will never not be acidemic without insulin. And, um, and how much, you know, an individual animal needs is like you said, it's dynamic, it changes. And, um, there's just, there's a lot going on. So I also really like using short acting regular insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, the, um, what I'm not a fan of is the sliding scale. Like I, 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 I've run into issues with it over the years. Um, but I think you do generally, no? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I'll get to that before, before we get to that, just add one up point out a really good point you make, which is regarding potential absorption of yeah. from the sub-Q space of regular insulin. Mm-hmm. And this article that you posted for today, um, which was, um, again, in the Journal of Emergency and Critical Care um, about this administration of Glargine yeah. um, versus regular insulin. And just want to point out that they gave the cats Glargine both sub-Q and intramuscularly. Yeah. And I think that yeah. may be the potential 
differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, may, maybe their muscular compartment is not as dehydrated, as, yep. and so they absorbed it well. And and I think you're right about dose. My impression from reading this is the cats that got the intermittent dosing probably got more insulin. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, exactly. Than the cats that got regular insulin. Yeah. And so I think they even. I'm my guess. I don't know. When I was reading this, um, they make a point in the article at some point um, of referring to the CRI as like low dose insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I was like, I feel like one of the reviewers said that, like, you need to say that this is low dose insulin because somebody was probably like, no, I don't use that dose and and my sliding scale works. Um, But it's just the dosage that you're using is, is significantly lower. And I, I, they didn't compare total amounts of insulin. I don't remember. I don't believe so. They didn't say like quantifying this group of cats got this much total insulin in this. Yeah. Cause I think if you did, I, I would as- expect the same finding that the cats that got the um, sliding scale just got less insulin. Um, yeah. And that to me explains the difference. It's not that their one protocol was better than the other protocol. It was just how much insulin were they given? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Good and, point. Um, and then lastly, uh, just recently, um, maybe it was even last month, um, there was uh, a similar article to this in, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out. Um, yeah, I didn't come across this one. In um, journal, 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 which journal? JVM, JSAP, journal. Uh, no, uh, emergency <laughs> and critical care. JVAC, oh, okay. Uh, uh, Glargine versus regular insulin protocol oh. and feline diabetic ketoacidosis. Oh, I missed this that was, one when I was searching for it. Uh, that's because it's in the April. Oh, okay. Edition. Because <laughs> this was um, like a month ago that I did these. Very cool. Uh, no, so that's April 2019. So how did I miss it? I, I don't know. I don't know. All right, well, I missed it. Um, Darn it. But the point is, there are multiple studies now, all of them you yeah. know, fairly small, but all of them very well done. Yeah. The bottom line is you can manage these cats with lots of different ways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Lots of different ways. I think those studies are nice for the people who are in practice that don't have regular insulin like all Mm -hmm. the time that it's like, Hey, you don't have to use it this way. They need insulin. The end. Like that's really what, um, that's really the, uh, the crux of it. And, and that's where for me, I get to where I like, I just need people to understand that these animals need insulin because, Mm -hmm. The other, you know, I, I think, and this is again where what I said at the beginning, mentally I approach a diabetic and a DKA differently because in a diabetic, they the treatment is insulin, but I'm using the, the insulin treatment to manage the glucose, mm-hmm. where in a DKA, the treatment is insulin and I'm not using the insulin to manage the glucose. I'm paying attention to it, but I'm using the insulin to manage the acidosis. That's kind of how I think about it. Like I'm getting rid of the ketones and, um, and, and this is where the sliding scale does kind of help, but I don't know if people really understand this, that you have to keep giving insulin. And if the glucose drops, you just have to give substrate. Like they just need something. Yes. When they, when their glucose gets near the normal range. And then people want to stop people giving insulin. People sometimes want to stop giving insulin. And, and it's that's absolutely what you cannot you do. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so people want to adjust the insulin rate yeah. based on the glucose, which is what you do for a diabetic, but it's not what you do for a DKA. Um, and so I, I, yeah. I, I really feel like that's the... That's the key <laughs> that yeah. really, you just have to understand this. You're treating this. You're not chasing the glucose anymore. You're monitoring the glucose mm-hmm. so that they don't get hypoglycemic. Like yeah. we, you know, but you're, and I, I'm also not, 
I also recognize that the amount of insulin they need right now has nothing to do with what they're going to need for long-term management because I'm getting them out of a crisis. Like we got behind. And so I have to give them excessive amounts of insulin, not what they would ever need normally to play catch up. And and so the amount of insulin I'm giving now has no bearing on what they're going to need later. I mean, maybe not no bearing, but like, I'm I'm really not even going to consider it. I'm going to, you know, probably start from scratch or maybe go back to where they were before as at least a starting point and then reassess. But, um, but yeah, I think that's the mistake people make because this case we had a couple weeks ago where, um, they had, they had maxed out on the sliding scale. Exactly. Um, they'd maxed, exactly. But, uh, but if you look at that sliding scale that people see, it's like, it doesn't go any higher and people don't think that I must just have to give more. Um, so an yeah. animal need like when, this is this is the thing I've been asking people lately about lots of stuff. How much insulin does an animal uh, does a cat need to get out of DKA? And the answer is enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer. And they need enough. And if what you're giving them now isn't enough, they need more. Um, I can't tell you a number. Um, and then and here's why. Here's the other reason. It's not so the, the sliding scale yeah. that we're talking yeah. about for yeah, anybody that's, that's lit, going to be listening to this podcast that's and doesn't point. know. Um, it is in this review article that the, we are yeah. talking about. And what we're talking about is the sliding scale for continuous rate infusion of insulin, which is Table based, one. On, based yeah. on a 2.2 unit per kilogram dosage in dogs and a 1.1 unit per kilogram dosage in cats put mm-hmm. into a 250 milliliter bag mm-hmm. of fluids and then administered at variable rates, depending on what range their glucose is in. And then it also tells you what fluid type to be giving to those patients. Um, And so, um, so that is, yeah, that's the sliding scale that's published in all sorts of different references. This, this is, it's, I don't know who the, who the original adapt, who originally adapted the human sliding scale for veterinary medicine. You probably have to go back a ways because you can find it in lots and lots of different references. Um, lots of textbooks, um, again, in this review article. So I'm going to tell you a couple of my beefs with it. If I can. Yeah. And then you, you asked me what I do and and it's, I find it to be an interesting story. Um, but you go first. Okay. I'll go first this time. Okay. So my beefs with it are a couple things. One is that it implies that there's a maximum. Um, again, as doctors, I think we should know that we have to deviate from things when we need to, but it implies that there's a maximum. Um, it also, like, if you look at this bottom thing, it says stop the insulin infusion. And I, that just bothers me a little bit because then I think people just go with that without like stopping to think like, what else is going on? Um, it's meant to be, you know, not foolproof, but it's meant to be like, if you're not comfortable with this, this isn't what you do. Um, but then I was like, you shouldn't be managing a DKA. Like you have to understand how this works. So I have that problem. Then also I think just the volume of fluid that you have to give a patient, Uh that's the other big beef I have is that for a lot of these patients, once you've resuscitated them, like that we might be giving them excessive fluid rates, um, just in their insulin. Now, if you're, if you're, thinking about it, you should be subtracting the insulin rate from whatever fluid rate you're giving. I don't think people often do that. Um, But for example, if you have to exceed this chart, um, which we had to do in the last patient, if you're increasing it even more, you're increasing the fluid rate as well. And so that's the other beef I have is that it's tied to a large volume of fluid administration, um, which I don't like. Um, So that's that's my biggest, uh, those are my biggest complaints with it is that people end up kind of using this and not understanding the physiology um, that it, there's, I'm a little bit worried about this. Just stop it without like these ranges 
don't tell me the whole story. A, a single point in time blood glucose doesn't tell me the whole story. I want to know what has the glucose been over the past eight, 12 you know, hours, because I think we all recognize there's a difference between a blood glucose that's 140 when an hour ago it was 240 and 140 when an hour ago it was 145. Like I'm going to treat that differently. Um, and this chart doesn't necessarily allow for that, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So those are my beefs with it. No, I, I, those are good, good beefs. Good, critiques <laughs> of, good beefs of it. And I think it comes back to the article that you, other article you chose today yeah. about the myths or myths or insanity, insanity yeah. which suggests that this sliding scale is, was created for the benefit and convenience of the people providing the treatment, not yeah. the person receiving it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's <laughs> definitely true. Yeah. Um, so what, what do I do? So, uh, interestingly, um, I had never used this, uh, continuous rate infusion and sliding scale okay. until we started to develop a full-time emergency service Oh, and okay. they were all using the sliding scale, sliding scale and oh, okay. continuous rate infusion. And so, so as to not create confusion for what? people that were being trained in that service, um, I decided I would just go along you and convert. Try, to, try to, um, not create confusion and do, um, do what they were doing. That's impressive. Um, but I have, uh, I would say until about 2018, um, I had always done the intermittent IM method. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not I know have, that. <laughs> and I have, I have critiques of, of that too. I don't, sure. didn't find that to be a perfect system sure. either. Um, but yeah, I, I went along to be a, a good team player. Good for you. Um, maybe <laughs> I didn't know. Well, yeah, I mean, well, I think that's a good reason, right. To yeah. say like, uh, I, you know, everybody's doing it this way. Is there a problem with doing it this way? Like I, I can yeah. make this work. Um, and again, you have an understanding of diabetes and D DKA that you could look at that and recognize there are limitations to this. Yeah. I can adjust and adapt when it's necessary. Um, for me, that's the danger is yeah. if you're just saying, just use this chart. And I hear people say that. That. I hear people say those words, just yeah. use the chart. Just, I was like, no, understand the disease, <laughs> you know, yeah. like just understand the disease and then everything else makes sense. Then when you understand the disease, you can use the chart yeah. um, and the chart can be helpful because you can deviate from it when it's medically appropriate to. Um, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't resist adding the sliding scale insulin use myth or insanity in, it was like actually one of the first things I found um, when I was looking for specific studies on the sliding scale. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's a title I can't ignore. No. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm also not a huge fan mm -hmm. of the sliding scale. Yeah. Um, they were, you know, kind of harsh in a couple places that I thought was a bit excessive. Okay. Did you, but I'm also going to read some of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it was it's, funny. It's um, so some strong term, this is a direct quote from this, this article, strong terms have been used in its condemnation, including quote, mindless medicine, paralysis of thought, action without benefit, a recipe for diabetic instability, action without benefits and a relic from the past. So that's, a direct quote of other quotes um, from this article. Now, again, I, I think that it depends on how you're using it. Um, if you're using it to replace understanding DKA, then I think those are probably fair things to say. Um, if you're using that because you're saying, hey, 
our techs have a heck of a lot going on. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, you know, decomplicate things. Um, here are the parameters under which I will deviate from this chart. Then I think that's reasonable. I, I mean, because essentially what I do is I sort of create my own chart. Um, and I say, this is what I want you to do, um, you know, under these circumstances. And this is where I just want you to call me because I'm going to have to like see what's happening over time. Um, because I think that's the hard part about any kind of chart is you're just looking at one point in time and I want to see trends, um, before I make, you know, major decisions. And, um, and then I also really like to make up insulin CRIs is in really concentrated forms, like not as concentrated as it comes out of the bottle. Um, but so that I can give lower volumes of fluid and then that doesn't impact like my, I can have a fluid plan and I can do what I want with my fluid plan. And then my insulin isn't heavily impacting that. Um, so, but I still end up making a bit of a chart. Sure. It's not a chart in and of itself that is the problem. It's, it's you know, what are you doing with it? Um, I like regular insulin CRIs, but I've also, um, I, I like the concept of starting them on long acting insulin early. Um, meaning I've worked at different places and different, you know, internists and criticalists all manage DK. Again, this is one of those, if you line up 10 different sure. specialists, you're going to get 30 different ways to manage DKA. It's one of those really, really frustrating ones where people even don't always agree with themselves. And I'm guilty of that too. But, um, I know a lot of people, where do you fall on this? That they won't start the long acting insulin until the pet is eating. That's traditionally what I have done. Yeah. Um, I, again, I'll say that these things articles that we've mentioned on mm -hmm. on use of glargine um, would suggest that you can start you don't glargine have to. right away. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've not adhered to that as mm -hmm. much where I've been like, okay, they're, once I feel like they are volume resuscitated, they're well rehydrated and that the absorption of the insulin mm -hmm. is probably reasonable, then I, I often will start them then. Um, again, now you have to be careful not to overinterpret what their glucose is doing if they're not eating. And I think, so I understand why people are yeah. like, I don't know what to do with these numbers if they're not eating because I can't apply these. So that's probably the difference between me being like, well, the long-term management isn't really what I care about right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll cross that ridge when I get to it. I just want to try to keep the glucose a little bit more under control. Um, but um, yeah, so it's always, it's always tricky because a diabetic now, if we're not even talking DKA, a diabetic in the hospital is always different than a diabetic at home. Like oh, yeah, for absolutely. whatever reason they're in the hospital is interfering. Um, we had a case, um, a post-op, um, surgical case that, um, ER was managing, ECC was managing and, um, it, it was diabetic. And the, the clients really wanted us to like do glucose curves and like figure things mm. out and adjust all this stuff. And I was like, no, <laughs> we are not going to do that because it's meaningless at this point. Your dog just had surgery um, where, was this the one? No, this one had an intestinal mass. But it's like, I don't know what your insulin needs are going to be. And what we do right now is just going to confuse everything. So I, I was like, no, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just going to confuse things. You're just going to have to follow up, you know, later and do this when your dog has recovered more. Um, but, but. I think, you know, we often forget that, that like we kind of yeah. have to throw that information out when it comes to long-term management for diabetes. Yeah. But so I don't know. So if, if, we, if we were to accept um, that the sliding scale for the continuous rate infusion of regular insulin is mm -hmm. not based in science and fact, uh -huh. which it certainly is not right. in human medicine and certainly <sighs> definitely not in veterinary medicine. Right. Um, and you use a your own sliding scale, yeah. with a more concentrated solution of insulin. Yeah. And when I do the intermittent IM method, I still okay. have to create a yeah a, a plan of a sliding scale, yeah. which is typically um, 
if their glucose has dropped um, somewhere between 50 and 100 uh-huh. milligrams per deciliter in an hour, then I want um, 0.1 units per kilogram of insulin to be given IM. Okay. Again, and if it's dropped over 100, I don't want any insulin given. Okay. And if it's um, dropped less than 50, I want double the dosage. Double it, given. you do 0.2. So that's okay. a sliding scale. Gotcha. Um, and, and you're then, je- checking, how often are you checking? The hourly. Hourly, okay. Yep. And then if it's dropped more than 200, I want someone to call me. Gotcha. Um, because I get yeah. worried about yeah. fluid shifts. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, having said that, we're still using sliding scales. Yeah, with absolutely. No, with no, uh, <laughs> with no evidence behind, behind it. it yeah, for sure. Um, so does that mean that there's not a way for us to... Certainly, I think it means there's yeah. not a definite protocol that everyone should be following. Um, but more, I think, coming back to what you started out with, which is um, broad guidelines is what we need yeah. to be really reinforcing. And that, and that's hard because, again, this, this is where things like sliding scales come up. <laughs> mm-hmm. People are like, I want to provide some guidelines that will help people um, to make good decisions. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think... I think that it's it's um, we can provide some broad guidelines for you should be checking these things, you know, that even yes. then people want to know, like, but how often like enough, yep. <laughs> you know, that's always my answer enough, just enough, not too much, not too little. I want the Goldilocks amount every single time. Um, so there's there's nuance that, you know, when you've been doing this is the art of medicine, right, yeah. rather than the science of it. Um, and when we don't have good science, that's um, but e- like even if you look at the um, if you're doing the glargine and things like that, there's still a scale. There's Absolutely. still a plan. Yep. Um, there's there's no getting around that. Um, and, you know, because for me, like I'll often um, I'll start like my insulin CRI at like 0.1 to 0.2 units per kick per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to adjust up or down depending on what they need. And um, I will start at sometimes a much higher dose if they're a known diabetic and I know their total daily dose it would exceed that, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with at least that typically um, and expect to have to go up from there. So I guess the question becomes, do we, yeah, do we just pick a different sliding scale um, that makes clear that there isn't a ceiling um, yep, and do that we isn't as tied to fluids? Because that would, yep. those, those are, those would address at least some of my concerns. Yeah, I think that would be great. Um, and so I think we could do that. We could come up with our in-house protocol and, um, but then I think you also have to make sure that people are using this. They they understand the physiology behind it um, uh, because there's always going to be times that you have to deviate yeah. from this. But I think there there is something to be said yeah. for that. And we could come up with our own kind of, again, it's not the sliding scale per se. It's the rel- over-reliance on it. Yeah. And it's the not understanding. It's using that as a replacement for understanding the physiology. Yeah. Those are the real problems. Yeah. I think um, guidelines for intervals for rechecking electrolytes, yeah. um, that would work for the majority of patients yeah. would be would be good. Yeah, with a, a little guideline. note that like you might have to deviate from yeah, the you know absolutely. like the patient can't afford or the you know the owner can't afford it. Okay, then right. don't do it that often. The patient is really tiny and doesn't have enough blood for that. Okay, we're gonna have to adjust. Like, yeah. um, you know, oh, it's really dropping a lot. Then don't wait four hours. Check it sooner. You know. Yeah, but so the guidelines are meant to meant to get a starting point to avoid major errors. Yeah. I think is the yeah. 
would be the main I think goal. we could totally do something like that. Yeah. And um, I think, especially if we had a protocol that was more than just the sliding scale, because mm-hmm. I think that's the other problem is people use the sliding scale and then they don't even talk about potassium or phosphorus or right. um, fluid therapy and other things that uh, it's easy to gloss over some of that. I think we should do that. We should come up with yeah. our own. Um, and then we should, I don't know. Try to figure out how to publish it. <laughs> yeah, trying to figure out how to test it. <laughs> I know. It's actually I, more effective than I know. the chaos that sometimes yeah. occurs. But then we have to enroll patients intentionally into that chaos. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know it, if it either be, of us want to do hard. that. <laughs> um, I'm not going to volunteer my pet for that. No. Um, but yeah, we should try to, maybe we could do a multi-center one <laughs> and other yeah. people. Actually, that could work because a lot of people do use the sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Um, we could do a multi-center trial um, and like, are you using the sliding scale or are you using something else? And then just kind of collect it in that way. That that could work really well, actually. Um, if you have a hospital that uses um, either the sliding scale or some other protocol and you want to enroll in our study. <laughs> um, <laughs> or you have one going on already. Or if you have one going on and you want us to enroll in your study. You know what? That sounds even better. Um, but yeah, no, we should do this. We should, um, we should come up with a, an in-house, you know, adapted protocol that I think between you and I, we can come up with something that, um, that we like and that works. And then what we can do, which might be even cooler is then like present it, like not just to our service, but even like, you know, to internal, cause I think that would also be cool if like hospital wide, it would help the ICU techs Mm -hmm. if we were all kind of using something similar. Not that again, I don't want to limit people's abilities to, to try things differently. Um, because it's guidelines. It's, it's a, it's a starting point, but yeah. That sounds like a good project. Yeah, it does. I like it. Um, cool. Are there any final things that you wanted to say about any of the papers or DKA or diabetes uh, management in well, general? The only other thing I was good to mention is the the review article brings up um, hyperosmolar syndrome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, just wanted to point out, I think it's That's a thing. pretty darn rare. It is very rare. Thing. Yeah, I remember the first time I learned that it was a thing. It was during my internship. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there's another diabetic crisis? I thought that was DKA. And Mm -hmm. it was fat. The cat cat died, um, as they... Often do, <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was cool. It was actually the case that pushed me to do a residency instead oh, wow. of not doing a residency. Yeah, so it was yeah during my internship. It was in that I was in that debate phase mm-hmm. about like, do I just go out and work into practice and be like just a good ER doctor, um, or do I go on and specialize? And I was you know I was feeling pretty confident in myself at that point. Yeah. You know, it's like halfway through the residency, and I'm like, okay, I'm doing okay. Um, and then I had been on an overnight and my shift had ended. Uh, I should have gone home. I didn't have the best like yeah. quality of life understanding back then. But, um, but this case came in, this cat, and uh, we didn't have like criticalists um, during my internship because a lot of places didn't. Sure. Um, so the internist was backing up the, the intern on ER and we have this hyperglycemic hyperosmolar case come in. I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but like this cat's potassium was like through the basement. Like there was no potassium in the cat and like he's giving amounts of potassium. I didn't think were legal. Like I was like, he's going to get arrested for the amount of potassium he's giving. And, um, and like, it was amazing. Like the resuscitation watching this cat go from like a, like a almost literal wet rag. Like you would have mistaken it for a wet rag to like, picking its head up and like in the short term resuscitate it again, long term. I don't remember what it ended up having, but probably cancer like half of them do. Um, but I was like, Oh, Oh, there's a lot out there that I still have no idea even exists. I have yeah. a lot more to learn. And it was like, it's time to do a residency, but that was such a cool case. And, um, yeah, so it was, a, a it, it was a true, I think at the time I was taught it was diabetic non-ketotic, uh-huh. um, right 
because they were like, oh, they often don't have ketones or they have small amounts of ketones, but they've gotten They've done away with that name yeah. um, because they can have some ketones. But anyway, um, we're not going to spend a lot of time. That, that could have its own show, the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar yeah. syndrome. They're very, very sick, but it is the other diabetic emergency, mm-hmm. which I, again, I was like, oh, there's things I didn't even, I've not even heard of, let oh, alone yeah. know how to treat. Like that cat would have died in my hands for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I should probably learn some more. And then that's mm-hmm. why I went on to do a residency. That's Great. why I went on to do a residency. Thank you to that cat. <laughs> right. Um, imagine how many animals I would have killed if I hadn't. Um, so yeah, thank you again for coming back yeah. again. This was a little different journal club. We didn't dig into the journals, but you should definitely read them. If you're listening now, there's some really good stuff in there. Um, and uh, maybe stay tuned. We'll be, maybe we'll come back and talk about our, um, our DKA guidelines, protocol, yeah. checklist, whatever we decide we're going to, we're going to call that at some point, but thank you again, David, for being here. Um, it's, it's always good to have you and, um, we will plan to catch you guys at the next show. 